Welcome to Muse Egyptology, your audio Egyptian museum. This is episode zero, which establishes the foundations of the knowledge that you'll need to understand what we'll be discussing in future episodes of the podcast. Today we'll be talking about two issues that you'll need to understand when learning about ancient Egypt, that is the chronology of ancient Egypt and the reliability of the evidence that we use to study it. If you have never studied ancient Egypt in depth or at a high level, I recommend that you listen to the whole of this episode and come back to it whenever you need to. As modern day history fans, we are used to being able to find out exactly when events happened, even those which took place over a thousand years ago. We take it for granted that we can pick up books about ancient Egypt and see a chronological list of kings, or quickly find one through an internet search. However, Establishing the timeline of ancient Egyptian history has been a very difficult and time-consuming process which has taken Egyptologists and archaeologists over a hundred years. The work is still ongoing and we don't know all the names of the kings. Some dates are still unknown and others are being debated. If you compare the chronologies in different Egyptology books you may notice that some of the dates for periods or kings reigns differ and some dates are preceded by a C dot which stands for circa, meaning approximately. For example, the reign of Sekemre Ta started in around 1560 BCE. The subject and our understanding of kingship is complicated further by contradictory and unreliable evidence, so-called dark periods providing fewer reliable historical sources, periods of more than one king ruling simultaneously in different areas during times of civil war, several instances of co-regencies between family members and an unclear dating system. If you come from a tradition of using a dating system such as BC before Christ and AD Anno Domini or BCE before the Common Era and CE Common Era or talking in terms of Early, Middle and Late Bronze Age or Iron Age, these terms are not typically used by Egyptologists when discussing ancient Egyptian history, which can be frustrating if coming from studying other countries' histories. Confusingly, the ancient Egyptians didn't have a running dating system. On day one of the new king's reign, the dating system commenced afresh, with year one, day one. So it's impossible to establish a timeline of events in Egyptian history without understanding the order of the king's reigns, which can be difficult in periods with limited evidence. As a result of these difficulties in ancient Egyptian chronology, it's essential for us to understand the fundamental concepts of Egyptian historiography in order to understand Egyptian history. The key to learning about ancient Egyptian history is understanding that it's divided up into kingdoms and periods and subdivided into dynasties. This dynastic system isn't a modern construct. An Egyptian priest named Manetho was commissioned in the 3rd century BCE, perhaps by King Ptolemy II, to construct a chronological history of pharaonic Egypt called the Aegyptiarcha. He used already ancient sources, such as king lists in temples, as evidence for Egyptian history, and divided the chronology up into 30 dynasties, the framework of which is still used by Egyptologists today, over 2,000 years later. Dynasties are sequences of rulers and their heirs or usurpers, and grouped into these dynastic time periods because they share something that links them, such as familial ties or where they ruled from. For example, the 11th dynasty is characterised by rulers based in Thebes, 
but because King Amenemhat I moved the capital to Ishtawi in the Fayyum further north, his reign marked the beginning of the 12th dynasty. Egyptologists took this useful dynastic system and grouped the dynasties into chronological periods, namely the early dynastic period, Old Kingdom, First Intermediate Period, Middle Kingdom, Second Intermediate Period, New Kingdom, Third Intermediate Period and Late Period. Outside of the dynastic framework, i.e. before the First Dynasty, archaeology has provided a rough chronology for early Egypt in the pre-dynastic period, and after Dynasty 30, ancient Egyptian history of course continued with the Ptolemaic period when Manetho lived, and long after his death, the Roman period. These labels are convenient to refer to a period of history because when you get to know their characteristics, for instance, periods of relative political stability and cultural continuity called kingdoms, such as the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom, it is easier to understand the events that happen within the context of the larger period. Don't worry about remembering all of this. You can download a basic chronology of Egyptian history from the Muse Egyptology blog. The link is in the podcast description. We will simply start by using these labels, Kingdom, Period and Nth Dynasty, to refer to the periods of Egyptian history in which events occurred or people lived, and you will pick it up quickly if you don't already know them. You will naturally start to put together an understanding of Egyptian history and chronology as we talk about ancient Egypt. So now you may have an appreciation of the broad chronology of ancient Egyptian history. It runs from the pre-dynastic period to the Roman period, and the dynasties run in sequential order from 1 to 30, simply and straightforwardly, right? Unfortunately, no, it's not that easy. Archaeology and historical research show that while during many periods kingship was simply passed from a king to his heir when he died, at certain periods, particularly during the intermediate periods when Egypt was in the midst of political unrest, foreign invasion or civil war, the country was divided with two kings ruling simultaneously. Because dynasties are largely characterised by kings related by family or by location, when two different royal families rule from two different locations at the same time, we find two dynasties running simultaneously, not concurrently, as would be expected. So the 10th dynasty of the Heracleopolitan rulers of the north and the 11th dynasty of Thebes happened at the same time during the First Intermediate Period, And similarly, the 15th dynasty of the Hyksos occurred simultaneously with the 16th and 17th dynasties of the Theban rulers of the Second Intermediate Period. To make things more complex, two kings could rule at the same time during periods of unity too. During the Middle Kingdom and New Kingdom, pairs of royals may have reigned simultaneously in co-regencies with confusing dating systems, but the very existence of these co-regencies is debated. I hope I haven't put you off learning about Egyptian history. It's really not that complicated when you get stuck in. I will explain the peculiarities of each period or dynasty throughout the podcast episodes, but I promise the fascinating stories outweigh the confusing history. Now I want to talk to you about the evidence or sources we have for ancient Egypt. Egyptologists benefit from a relatively large amount of remaining evidence, including the monuments, objects, writings and artwork that tell us about ancient Egypt. However, anyone who is studying this subject must understand how reliable, or not, these sources are for demonstrating things about ancient Egypt. By reliability, I mean how trustworthy are they, how far can we believe what they say, 
how much can we use them? That doesn't mean that the ancient Egyptians set out to deceive us. It means that we must understand these sources in the context in which they were made, by putting ourselves in the ancient Egyptian shoes or sandals. I won't go into detail about many of these types of evidence here. We will discuss them further when we come to talk about individual pieces of evidence in the future. But here are a few basics so you have a fundamental understanding of how we use the sources and the limitations we must work around when learning about ancient Egypt. When we study ancient Egypt through its remaining evidence, one must understand that the hundreds of thousands of Egyptian artefacts held in museums worldwide are likely only a tiny proportion compared to the millions of objects, pieces of writing and artworks that existed during the more than 3,000 years of ancient Egyptian history. There are more to be found, and there are countless objects which have not survived. Therefore, the objects which we now have access to in museums do not show us the whole picture, and our knowledge is limited by the evidence which is accessible to us. During the early decades of Egyptian archaeology, thousands of objects went into the hands of private collectors, largely those who funded the archaeological digs. When one object can provide us with the answer to a mystery, how many mysteries will never be solved because the evidence is locked away in a private collection? When analysing the evidence which remains, we must understand where it comes from. The artefacts that have survived and have been discovered are largely from tombs, and these tombs belong to people who could afford to have a tomb, a small percentage of the population. Therefore, we have relatively little evidence for the majority of ancient Egyptians, the regular people who couldn't afford tombs. Instead, we mostly have evidence for the higher-ranking people. These are kings, other members of the royal family, the elite, that is the king's courtiers, and people who climb to a high position within Egyptian hierarchy, such as regional governors, and the middle classes who worked in a profitable profession and were able to afford tombs, but perhaps on a smaller scale or lower quality. The majority of ancient Egyptian people were of the lower classes, and because they could not afford tombs and tomb goods of a quality like those which have been discovered, and the vast majority of their houses and personal possessions have also not survived, for instance due to the fragility of their materials, their lives have largely disappeared from the material record. How truly representative is the ancient Egyptian evidence for its people? We do have some evidence for the lives of the lower classes in ancient Egypt, but much of it comes from exceptional sources, such as workmen's villages, or from secondary sources such as scenes of daily life in the tombs of the elite. We must take the context of the evidence into account to decide how we can use it in the study of ancient Egypt. When one thinks of ancient Egypt, the hieroglyphic writing and the artistic style surely come to mind. Egyptian textual sources and iconographic, meaning artistic, evidence are undoubtedly invaluable sources, helping us to understand what the Egyptians thought about themselves and what they perceived to be important. However, they come with their own limitations which must be taken into account when using them to learn about ancient Egypt. The percentage of ancient Egyptians who could read or write was tiny in comparison to the population. They were mainly those who had been through formal education, for example, the upper classes and those in professions such as scribe and priest. The vast majority of literate people were men, meaning we have very few first-hand examples of the words of women and the lower classes about life from their perspective. The Egyptians who could write wrote about everything, from historical events, myths, stories and letters, 
to taxation records, legal contracts and work attendance registers. For texts such as those in tombs and temples, they believed that writing was a means of magically making the subject matter permanent, figuratively, or in many cases literally, set in stone, so that the people and the events discussed would magically exist or repeat for eternity. Texts in tombs about the deceased, recording his name and positive attributes, would therefore help the deceased to survive in the afterlife, to access and remain in the Egyptian version of heaven. By the same token, they believe negative statements would exist and repeat for eternity. Therefore, the ancient Egyptians omitted the negative actions of the deceased and were very cautious about how they wrote down negative things such as bad news, in particular referring to the death of the king as the falcon flying to heaven. Therefore, some Egyptian sources are skewed and unreliable if taken at face value. We must understand what the Egyptians meant in some of their statements by putting ourselves in their shoes. We also have to take into account the propaganda in some of their written evidence, as we do in the modern world and throughout the study of history. For instance, of course official texts and those written by people loyal to the king would write about his exploits in an exclusively positive manner, but can we really believe inscriptions that say that in the Battle of Kadesh, Ramesses II defeated his enemy's army single-handedly when all of his soldiers ran away? Ancient Egyptian artwork is iconic in its style, in both meanings of the word. In the same way as with writing, formal art was used to represent people and events in temples and tombs for posterity and eternity, for instance recording a king's good deeds and achievements, and tomb paintings representing the deceased. Therefore we have to consider them in a similar way to textual evidence. We must also take the artistic style with a pinch of salt. Egyptian two-dimensional artwork is famous for its representation of human figures with a face, waist and legs in profile, and the shoulders and chest forward-facing, so much so that it has inspired the Bengals to write a song about the unusual way the Egyptians must have walked. However, we all know that this isn't what the human body looks like. But have you ever noticed that nearly everyone in Egyptian artwork looks almost identical? For instance, the women are all slim and pale, and the men are mostly muscular and dark-skinned, regardless of their real bodies. Even the faces look very similar. This is because the artists weren't representing the individual, but the person in the guise of the typical ancient Egyptian man or woman. Women were depicted as pale-skinned, for example, because the typical Egyptian woman was perceived to stay indoors and work in the home away from the sun, ignoring the fact that they would most likely have had darker skin than this naturally. The ancient Egyptians did not feel the need to be represented accurately in their artwork. The attribution of one's name to a generic human figure was seen to be an effective depiction of an individual for their iconographic needs. So, can we believe what we see in ancient Egyptian artwork? There is a lot more to the issue of the reliability of their art than I have discussed here, but when talking about representations of the Egyptians themselves, let's put it into this context. In a thousand years' time, what will digital archaeologists think the average 20-something-year-old woman looked like in the early 21st century when seen through the lens of Snapchat and Instagram filters? Thanks for listening to episode zero of the Muse Egyptology podcast. You can visit the Muse Egyptology blog for quick notes to remind you of what I told you about today, 
with timestamps if you need to revisit specific sections. Hopefully what you've learned will help you to understand better what we'll be talking about in future episodes. Please do tune in to the rest of the Muse Egyptology podcast series where we'll be learning about the fascinating world that was ancient Egypt.